If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 this morning. In many respects, chapter 4 is a unit in itself, but for the sake of time, we're going to take it in two parts, 1 through 16 for today. So listen to the word of the Lord as I read. Genesis 4 verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is great cause for us to find honor reflecting on the fact that we are your image bearers that we bear your likeness. There is great shame as we reflect and consider on how corrupt our nature is. Father, as we look at the spread of sin through the world that has been ruined by our forefathers and that continues to be troubled by the sin that we bring on a daily basis, would you give us a healthy loathing and fear of sin, but also a great hope and expectation for the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of sin in the seed. 
in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are told what the judgment will be on them because of their rebellion and disobedience. The Lord says that there will be ongoing hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Responding to that with a measure of faith and hope, Adam names his wife Eve, trusting, believing that because of what the Lord has said about a seed that will come from her, that a line that will grow and develop, that she will be the mother of all living. That idea, that idea of the promised seed is picked up in chapter 4, and I, I want to start for a minute to, to draw our attention to the, uh, the way that chapter 4 is framed as a presentation of the seed of the woman growing and developing because it's in connection with the growth and the development of the seed, of Eve's seed, the expanding of the human race, that we're to draw a further understanding of what that means with the growth and the spread of sin. So in 3.20, give me just a, a minute or two just to sort of nerd out on you here for a second, okay? In 3.20, you have this statement, now the man called his wife's name Eve. Some of your versions, depending on what you're reading from, may have, now Adam called his wife called his wife Eve. Probably the man is the better way to say it. It seems that the, the Hebrew that's being used there is trying to make little of Adam and making much of Eve. The emphasis is being put on her role. So the man, generic, named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. When 4.1 starts up, that same phrasing is used in 4.1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. Do you see that? So the, the phrasing in 3.20 when the man names the woman Eve is picked up in 4.1. The man knew his wife Eve as a way to emphasize the woman's role in providing a line. So the promise that God gives that the human line will continue, that it won't be snuffed out is being brought to fruition. They're actually seeing signs of hope. And of course, with the seed of the woman coming into view, there is the hope or the expectation that somehow, some way, from the, the line that comes from Adam and Eve, there will be a deliverer to come and to take care of sin and the serpent. By the time we get to the end of chapter 4, things have gone drastically wrong. Chapter 4 starts with the mention of the woman's giving birth to Cain and ultimately to Abel. If you look to the end of chapter 4, look at verse 25, 4.25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So chapter 4 opens with a birth. Chapter 4 closes with a birth. And all in between, the beginning and the end of chapter 4, are a lot of births that are happening. There's a lot of seeding going on. The problem, though, is that as the seed multiplies and as it begins to develop, 
there's the uncomfortable realization that the more people you have, the more sin you have, and sin that is not static, but sin that is deepening and worsening. So there is a a very stark tension that runs through chapter 4, where on the one hand there is something to be thankful for in the fact that God is, by His grace, allowing His creation to continue and allowing man and woman to thrive and to prosper. And yet, we're being brought to the realization that even though God's grace is evident and is at work, there is still the dilemma of sin and the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience that is continuing to manifest itself in each and every one of their descendants who come from them. So, by the time we go from Adam and Eve and one act of disobedience to the next generation, Cain and Abel, it does not take one generation and we've gone from eating a piece of fruit to murder. That's quite an accelerant, isn't it? One bite of a piece of fruit, and in the next chapter, we've already got fratricide. But notice that there, as heinous as what the murder is, there's a whole host of things that are tied into that. It's not just that the one sin that's identified here in the story of Cain and Abel is the fact that you've got a brother killing brother, but all these other things are wrapped up in it. So on the one hand, we've got the seed developing, Cain and Abel. Then you've got very quickly in verses 3 through 8, the sin that Cain commits. But here's, most of us are probably familiar with this story, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time rereading every verse, but let me just draw your attention to certain things that are sort of running beneath the surface, all right? We tend to put our focus on the actual death of Abel without recognizing all of the other signs of corruption that are in this interaction between Cain and Abel. So, for example, when the story of Cain and Abel begins, the picture that is presented to us is of the brothers coming and bringing a gift, bringing an offering to the Lord. Of the two offerings, only one offering is accepted. The offering that Abel gives is accepted, but the one that Cain brings is not accepted. There's been no shortage of speculation as to why that is. Is it because Abel brings a lamb? He's giving a blood offering, whereas Cain is bringing fruits and vegetables. And God loves carnivores more than He loves vegetarians. No, that's probably not it. There's no hint, there's no suggestion in the passage that the problem between the two gifts or the difference is that one is a blood offering and one is not. You you won't pick that up from the text. What the text does seem to indicate, though, is that there is a difference in the quality of the gift, which, by implication, is a reflection on the giver himself. So, when it talks about Cain and Abel bringing their gifts, look down in verse 3, Cain brings an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He's a farmer. He brings produce. Abel, on his part, verse 4, brings not just something from the flock, 
he brings a firstling from the flock and their fat portions. Do you see the, the description that's attached to Abel's offering? In other words, Abel and his offering are singled out because Abel is taking care to bring the best of what he has, something that is valuable and meaningful, the first of the flock, the best part of the flock to give to the Lord, whereas Cain is just said to bring something. And I think that's where the, the contrast lies. Ultimately, what you seem to have here is already, with Cain, dead religion. You have two men who are going to the offering to present a gift to the Lord, two men who are approaching the Lord to worship, one who apparently is conscientious and thinking through what it is that he's doing, who it is that he's offering a gift to, whereas the other one is just going through the motions. Don't, don't run past this too quickly. You understand that for Cain to do that, right, his mom and dad, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the garden. In some respects, in chapter 4, Cain and Abel appear to have some sort of deep connection or privileged access to interaction with the Lord Himself because the Lord actually approaches Cain to try to right the situation that Cain has created. In other words, Cain is not just going through the motions because he doesn't know better. He knows better than anyone what it means to walk with the Lord, what it means to disobey the Lord, what the consequences of sin are, who the Lord is as Creator and King and so on. But we've gone from Adam to Cain, and already we've got in the next generation someone saying, I'd rather not worship. That's a pretty quick jump. Usually that kind of movement takes place over generations, right? I mean, even in America, we tend to think about the, the watershed cultural moments and change that happened, say, in the 60s. And we trace back a lot of the conditions of our society today to what started there, and we say, and look now, three, four generations down at where we have arrived. Here it's just Adam to Cain, and Cain says, I don't really care. A token offering doesn't mean much to him, not very much reverence or honor for the Lord, already displays that something is not right with Cain's heart. Another indication of how badly things are going from the start is that when Cain is confronted, graciously confronted by the Lord, the response on the part of Cain is not to listen to the voice of the Lord and to respond to it. Cain looks at the rejection of his token, empty, dead offering, and his response is to become angry not with himself, 
not over the lackluster offering that he brings to the Lord, but he's angry with God and with his brother. Notice and listen to how gracious the Lord is in approaching Cain. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, there's no reason for you to stay in this position. If you just simply do what you know is right and good, all of this will be reconciled. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to stew in your rage and in your bitterness. It's just turn. And if you do not, the Lord says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, but you must master it. The Lord is taking the time to stop Cain in his tracks and to say, consider the path that you're walking. The sin that you are practicing and engaging in right now is a tip of the iceberg compared to the sin that is waiting and lurking around the corner. So sin is depicted as this wild animal that is crouching, waiting to pounce and to devour Cain. And the Lord is warning Cain ahead of time to say, you have the opportunity to turn now not to be devoured by sin. You can kill sin before it kills you. But Cain doesn't want to hear it. By the way, can we pause right here for a second? This whole idea of sin crouching at the door and its desire is for you. This is the same language, by the way, that's used in chapter 3 when God tells Eve that her desire will be for her husband. The same verb that's used there is used here in chapter 4 for sin's desire is for you, a desire to overtake, to control, to master. But the, the bigger point in chapter 4 is to pause and to recognize that this, the indications of the sinfulness, sin sickness of the human heart is such that sin never remains static, it never remains constant, it always grows and it always, always, always seeks to take more ground and to eat up more of your life. You and I do not manage sin. We kill sin by the power of God's Spirit, or sin kills us. There is no partnering that we do with sin. You understand that? The word that the Lord gives to Cain is a word that He would give to all of us. Sin is crouching at your door, Merit. When you have that thought, when you have that look, when you have that response, when you have that anger, when you have that selfishness, sin is crouching at the door, and every impulse that you give into feeds that sinful beast that is growing and developing so that it can devour you. This is one of the reasons why 
when there are all these tragic moral failures that happen with Christians, whether in positions of leadership or not, the initial glance, everyone is so struck, so surprised by it. But more often than not, when you begin to dig in, you come to find out that it's not that Joe Christian is just walking along minding his own business and lo and behold, he decides that he's going to embezzle his company. He's going to cheat his company out of a million dollars. Or he's walking along the way and all of a sudden he just decides that he's going to commit adultery today. Those things don't happen in a vacuum. Those things are the culmination of sin growing, conquering, taking more and more of a foothold slowly but deliberately in our hearts and minds so that at a certain point in time it finally rears its head in this heinous sin. But the process is the same. If you're not killing the beast of sin, it will kill you. Listen to what John Owen said back hundreds of years ago, reflecting on sin and the duty that he said every Christian has to be killing sin. He says this, sin aims always at the extreme. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it had its own course, it would go out to the greatest sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Do you hear that? Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression and theft. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it was allowed to grow to its head. He goes on to say, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you're alive. Do not cease a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do you, do you play comfortably with your sin? Do you entertain it? Do you treat it as a harmless little pet that you have on a leash that you walk around and can take out and exercise whenever you want and yet keep it firmly in your grasp or under your control? You're fooling yourself. You're buying into a lie. Sin never sleeps, it never rests, and it always, always, always sets its eyes to master you and me. So you've got Cain involved in dead religion. He doesn't care about honoring the Lord with his sacrifices. Rather than responding in humility, he's angered over the fact that the Lord would not take this token offering. He rejects or ignores the warnings of the Lord about sin and its encroaching on his heart and mind. Then we get to the actual murderous act. Not only does he murder his brother to get him out of the way as if his brother is the problem, not himself, but when he is confronted by the Lord, he acts as if he's had nothing to do with his brother's demise and appears to be completely unrepentant. He is an unrepentant murderer. Adam, Cain, bite of a fruit, 
unrepentant murderer. You see how quickly that happens? The Lord said to Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord should have smacked him right there. The Lord should have smacked Adam and Eve in chapter 3. Should have smacked Cain. Should have smacked you. Should have smacked me. Cain, the blood of your brother... The blood that you shed is crying out to me. I know what you have done. I saw it. You have not given a second thought to what you... Do you you hear how cold and callous that heart is to give that kind of a flippant response to the Lord when He asks for an account of what it is that you have done? And then... Not only do we have an unrepentant murderer, but when God pronounces His judgment on Cain, how does Cain respond? Listen as you get down to the verses. The Lord says, because you polluted the ground with your brother's blood, the ground is not going to respond to your work. You're going to have to wander as a vagrant to try to find food, to try to find a living for yourself. Verse 13. My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. You you hear all the first-person pronouns? Even after his sin has been exposed, even after... Judgment has been pronounced, discipline, where is the focus for Cain? On himself. And not only is the focus still on himself, he still has not had any sort of right impulse in his heart to respond in an appropriate or righteous way. Not only is he self-focused, self-centered, he actually has the audacity to tell God that his pronounced verdict is unjust. I killed my brother. Here's the punishment that you're giving me, but you're overreacting. This punishment is too great for me to bear up under. You should back off a little bit. All of this has happened in less than the span of a generation. By the way, how did Cain get to a place where his heart was this corrupt, where he has no spiritual inclination to worship the Lord or to honor Him, where when things don't go his way, rather than amending his ways, he just doubles down in his anger and in his bitterness. He rejects the word of the Lord when the Lord is trying to graciously warn him ahead of time and then becomes an unrepentant murderer and accuses God of being unfair in his justice. How does his heart get to be that way? Like when, when Adam and Eve are talking, does, does, does Eve say, you know, ever since he started hanging out with those kids down the street, is that what it is? Is it, is it bad company? 
Did he go to the wrong school? Too much internet, too much TV? Where, where does that come from? He's born with it. He's born with that kind of sin sickness. And by the way, the message of Genesis and all of Scripture is, so are you. So am I. No one but no one but no one needs to teach me how to sin. I can do that very well all by myself without any instruction or tutorials. No one needs to encourage me to ignore God. That is my natural bent. I don't need anyone to convince me to be a rebel and a God-hater. What I do need is someone to rescue me from that twisted heart. And what Genesis 4 goes on to show is that the more that the human race grows, the more evidence there is that there is a corrupt nature that every single man and woman inherits and is born with. It is not acquired, it's given. It's inherited. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. This is not... This is not just a curious history lesson. 1 John 3, verse 11. Read with me 1 John 3, 11 through 16. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Pause right there for a second. Do you hear what's being said? Why did Cain kill his brother? And John says, well, because he did bad things. Doesn't that seem to be a little redundant? But in the, the broader message of John, to say that someone does bad things is to give evidence of where it is that they come from, who it is that they're tied into. He does bad things. He does evil things because he is evil. Why did Cain kill his brother? He was evil. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that he, Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Two things, just very briefly, that I want to point out before we transition to the Lord's Supper. Number one, what we see in Genesis 4 with Cain killing his brother 
is a type or is a model for what all of human history has been. It has been evil preying on the weak and the innocent. And just so that we don't get too comfortable or so or too comfortable with ourselves, every single one of us when we are born into this world are born with the evil seed embedded into our nature. We don't come to become people of righteousness until God rescues us. And from then on, John says, this is the way that life goes. Evil people prey on the righteous. Why do they do that? Just simply because you're trying to worship. Simply because you're trying to follow the Lord. Listen, people, gear your, your kids, your grandkids, gear yourself up for the fact that at a, at a certain point, there is nothing that you can do to accommodate yourself to the world. There is no ground that you can give that is going to put you on good terms with the world because the world in its natural state is diametrically opposed to us in our spiritual state as children of God. And to think that if I give a little, I can get a little is a fool's errand. But it's also a reminder that because this is the way the world works, we come, especially to days like today where we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and we remind ourselves that were it not for the grace and kindness of God in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, I would be consumed and owned by my sin. I would be an angry man guilty of murder in my heart, if not by the act. And it further then motivates me to look out and to see my brothers and my sisters who claim a family connection with me in Christ and to say, if His seed abides in me, if He has made me new, that means that I will, I must love my brother and sister. Because if I don't, and if love is not being exercised, if love is not being demonstrated in some way that exemplifies the love that we found in Christ Himself, we have reason to question whether or not we have actually been brought into the seed of Christ. How well do you love? Are you getting better at loving than you are at being angry might be a way to ask it. And if your loving is not excelling more than your anger, why is that? Is your loving excelling and surpassing your pride and your self-centeredness? And you could put in any other sin that you want, whatever it is that trips you up. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we turn now to go to this sacrament, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would impress upon us how undeserving we are to be brought to this table, 
to share in this meal that has been given to us, not because we deserved it, but because we were in desperate need of it. Remind us that this meal is provided for us because another death took place. Blood was spilt on the ground so that we could be made alive and could be brought to you. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you have imparted yourself to us so that we can break free from the power of sin and temptation. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Before uh, Andy and the uh, praise team leads us in uh, another song as we distribute the elements, I'm going to have the, uh, the deacons and some of the elders in just a moment come down to, uh, to get the elements and to pass them out. We have again the... Uh, the little cup that has both the, the wafer on top and the, uh, the juice in the cup. As they come by, you'll just take one of these, hold on to it until after it's been distributed. After the song, I'll come back up and I'll lead us through partaking of the elements together. Uh, so in the meantime, sit quietly, reflect on what it is that you've heard from the scriptures today. Reflect on the message of the song that's being presented here. Men, if you'll come forward now to take the elements and begin to distribute it to the people. Go ahead, Andy. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 19. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left, when, he, when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. storm found no place at the keeper's door it was for this a child was born to save a world so cold and hollow a sleeping town they did not know that lying in Your king who had no home 
to heal our sorrows. Is there room in your heart? Is there room in your heart? Is there room in your heart for God to write this story? Birds counting sheep at night Do not fear the glory light You are precious in His sight God has come to raise the lowly Is there room in your heart? Is there room in your heart? Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. When Abel's blood hits the ground, it calls out to the Lord for justice. Sin has been committed and it needs to be paid for. When the blood of Christ hits the ground, it calls out for forgiveness. He becomes our brother through the incarnation. He takes on a human life, a human existence. We, his brothers and sisters, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, sent him to his death. And yet, the shedding of his blood demands not our punishment, but our healing and our reconciliation. That is far better than anything we read about in Genesis 4. So as you have the elements before you, if you would peel back that initial layer to get to the wafer. And take and eat, remembering that he was broken and bruised so that you could be made whole again. Now, if you'll take the cup, Jesus said that this was the blood of the new covenant that was being cut or shed in his blood, so drink knowing that his blood is poured out so that you could be given life. Father, we praise you that by your grace and mercy, you have made us children of God, and that you have done that by causing your eternal Son to take on human flesh, to become a brother to us, our firstborn, to live and to lead that perfect life that we never could, and then to die in our place so that the blood that is poured out at the cross would be blood that would result in our healing and our entering into a new covenant. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives to us everything that Christ has purchased in his death and resurrection and in his ascension. Thank you that your spirit gives us the ability to see what we otherwise would not see. Be with us now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, Son of God, dismissed.